relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. So we have a new speaker of the house. We have some rhinos that are losing their coveted positions that they expected to receive as chairman of key committees. Is it all show and tell? Is it just a shiny new object? Or did the few days of holding out by the Freedom Caucus hardliners make a difference for the future of the conservative movement? I'm delighted to have with us for this one-on-one somebody who's been fighting for the conservative movement for years now. He understands the challenges at hand, and he actually has a brand new book out today about it. He is the founder, the editor-in-chief, the grand poobah of AmericanGreatness.com. Chris Buskirk, welcome to America First One-on-One. Thanks for having me. Sounds fun. All right, super timing, super timing. So excited to hear about the book and how you diagnose the current situation and then what has to be done to get us back to some kind of sense of normalcy. There it is. There it is. I didn't even answer. It's magic. America and the art of the possible restoring national vitality in an age of decay. If you're not familiar with this man's website, why? Where have you been? It's amgreatness, amgreatness.com. Superb contributors like Victor Davis Hanson. Somebody called Eric also writes pieces there. I don't know who that guy is. But uh, please go to amgreatness.com. Follow Chris at the Chris Buzzkirk on Twitter. Chris, so let's start. I- I'd like uh, your take on first things first, this idea that, ooh, it's so chaotic. It's so bad to wait a few days to choose a Speaker of the House. Your reaction to the accusations of unheard of chaos on the right? No, it's not, of course it's not chaotic. I mean, elections um, elections are just this way, as they say. I mean, I, I, I wish I'd come up with what I'm about to say. I didn't, but it's right. I mean, we, uh, we wait a long time to find out, uh, too long actually, to find out the uh, results of elections in places like Arizona after we have our big election. So, uh, and, and that's after all the votes have been cast. It's perfectly fine for the members of the House of Representatives to have multiple votes uh, as they negotiate uh, who they want to be Speaker and what they uh, and what they want to see the future House look like. Not just in terms of who the leadership is, but also in terms of what the the rest of the uh, uh, the structure looks like. The rules of the House, the chairmanships, the so, you know the the, uh, the vice chairmanships, and so forth. I think the, the the argument that this was chaotic, I think, is not the argument uh, to be made. I think that's. Uh, I, I just think that's. I just think that's false. I mean, the rules under which the a Republican majority operates are pretty important. Well, especially when you look at the nature of the the rules that they propose, and I I read a few of them out yesterday on Monday, uh, they were like, oh, um, members should be allowed to add amendments to uh, budget bills as opposed to the leadership just deciding fait accompli what should be in a budget and members being allowed to propose a vote on the vacation of the chair. None of these things seems to be extreme or, or, or radical. And I thought, don't you agree, it was rather telling that the other side, the McCarthyites, never spoke of the substance of what the Freedom Caucus 20 wanted, they just said, oh, this is bad. Why would you not speak of the substance if it was actually a policy problem, Chris? I think um, so I have a little bit of criticism for both sides here, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I think what you're saying is correct, is that if they wanted to address the substance, meaning the uh, leadership side, um, then they should have, they should have done that. I think it would have made their case stronger, by the way. But the flip side, I think, is also true, which is that the rhetoric that was coming from several of the I don't know I don't I feel like it's wrong to call them the distance, but the people who were not originally voting for um, McCarthy, um, a lot of their rhetoric was just we don't like Kevin McCarthy and he's bad, and that was that was the part that sort of led to uh, the accusations I think of this being chaotic and rather than substantive because I think when it came to the substance of the arguments about well we we should have certain people. Uh, we should, we want X, Y, and Z to be the chairman of these certain committees, and we want these rules changes. 
they were on very, very firm ground when they were talking about that stuff. When it was when it was personal and um, you know sort of venting spleen against uh, Kevin McCarthy, that's when I think the the arguments became a lot weaker. And so the like the Ameri- uh, the American people in general and the Republican electorate um, in particular, I think, is very um, sympathetic to the rules changes that were proposed and that were ultimately being made. And so, like my my general view is that had those arguments been been at the forefront, um, that we would have that probably this would have resolved quicker. But also that I think we would have been in a better place for setting the table for further uh, changes that would have made the house that would make the house run better uh, in the future. In in that regard, I see an analogy to the midterms, Chris. Um, it seems as if both sides, just as with the GOP writ large really failed to make a case, which is, I, I think, fair to say of the midterms. I, I, as a conservative and yeah. as a voter, I, I, I yeah. couldn't tell you what the GOP stood for in the midterms. Could you? No, I mean, this was a, this was a big failure that, uh, that, that Republicans had in the midterms, which is um, the decision was explicitly made that Republicans should run against Biden, try and make the election a referendum on Biden. You talk about the Biden inflation and that sort of thing. And that was um, that was that wasn't it um, at all because basically what I think one of the things that people fail to recognize is that you know we're a pretty dicey economy um, there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of unknown unknowns uh, as Don Rumsfeld would say <laughs> going forward and people feel a little precarious uh, in their lives and that makes them not more likely but less likely to want political change they want some type of stability so like the economy is dicey but it's not horrible like this we're not in we're not deep in a recession yet that may that may come later this year uh, and and as a result just running and saying well we're not Biden and you know inflation is too high and et cetera it just wasn't enough and there had to be a positive vision for the future. There had to be a positive vision for what uh, Republicans want the country to look like and how they were going to get us there. And that our vision was never, ever articulated. And this is this is actually one of the this is a this is one of the biggest critiques um, that we have of, of our own side, which is that we consistently uh, fail to articulate a vision for the future that makes people's lives better, and instead really do just become uh, the party and a permanent opposition party. And that's you know that that's just no way to run a country. And and beyond the the debate itself and the shenanigans of the you know the last four days, what is your opinion of Kevin McCarthy? Well, I mean, so McCarthy, I think the good, the bad, and the ugly here with McCarthy is that. Um, you know, in some ways, he's been pretty effective. Uh, I want to let me say the good first, because uh, I want to start with the good. So McCarthy was has been a very effective fundraiser for uh, for CLF for the Congressional Leadership Fund. That is part of the leader's job, and he should get credit for having done that. He also, I think, should get credit. Um, he also, I think, should get credit for taking a job, meaning minority leader, that is like a super undesirable job. Like it, it's just. You, there's no glory in it. You can't ever pass any legislation. You really are just trying to herd cats all the time. And so there is, I think, some um, there is some merit in being the guy who kind of to the plate and does that. The criticism of McCarthy on the other side, um, which is also fair, uh, it, and that's what I think drives a lot of uh, a lot of our fellow conservatives crazy, is that there's not. Um, is that McCarthy doesn't seem to be especially ideological. He's sort of broadly right of center. Um, but, you know, when it comes to the things that we all think are really, real, really important, you, you never really get the sense that he's 100 percent there. Yeah. Um, you know, he maybe is there a little bit or if he's forced to do stuff, he will do it. But I think what people um, what, what the what the base is really looking forward for is somebody who's going to lead on these issues, not uh, not be led on these issues. Um, and I guess and I guess a final comment uh, on leadership in general, and this speaks to, this I think really speaks to the, the House in, in general, is that there were not really good, plausible alternatives, or they would have emerged. And this is a place where I think we have some real spade work to do uh, in Republican politics in general, which is that we need to get, we need to get new, better, energetic, smart leaders into the House so that there's a crop. Uh, so we have a bench. So, you know, there's a crop of leaders in waiting who can, you know, they can start running their committees and eventually they become 
uh, and eventually they get into leadership in the House, and eventually they become Speaker. And there are people that can lead the Republican Party uh, and the country forward. I mean, and, and just so I'm not, not all negative, one, one person who, I, by the way, I think fits that bill um, is Jim Banks. Like, Jim Banks ran for whip. He lost by five votes. Uh, Jim Banks, I think, would be a great, um, smart, energetic, legitimate conservative member of House leadership, and Republicans should consider him. We're talking to Chris Bosco, the founder of American Greatness. You've got to uh, bookmark the website, amgreatness.com. Follow him at the Chris Buskirk. If you enjoy our one-on-ones, the deep dive, the long form with the true experts and the real newsmakers, don't forget to subscribe. It's absolutely free. Go to Spotify, plug in my name, Sebastian Gorka, America First. Leave us a five-star review and share the links with your friends. Don't forget, if you are America First, you've got to have your America First gear. Where do you go to get it? SebGorkaStore.com, celebrating the president announcement that he's running for a second time the trump 2024 t-shirt and hat maga is back also the challenge coin that you demanded and you our listeners uh, designed with president trump america first and our stay frosty motto so much more all made in america sebgorkastore.com that's s-e-b-g-o-r-k-a sebgorkastore.com whether it's the regular Hellcat or whether it's the compensated RDP with that miniature red dot, I love them all. How did it take so long to invent a factory compensated subcompact 9mm? Well, guess what? Springfield did it, and I'm a huge fan, and I'm Sebastian Gorka. The Hellcat from Springfield Armory is still the smallest, highest-capacity micro-compact in the world. Available in standard or optics-ready configurations, class-leading capacity of the Hellcat gives you 11 plus 1 with the standard magazine and 13 plus 1 with the included extended mag. The definitive concealed carry pistol is here. The Hellcat from Springfield Armory gives you the capacity to defend. One of the other, um, I wouldn't say delightful, but one of the um, useful consequences of the fight last week and at the weekend is that the, uh, the bad guys came out of the closet. The rhinos, for example, he will never live this down for the f- rest of his political career. This is Dan Crenshaw using the kinds of language that we use for people that we want to kill and are enemies of this nation. Play cut. Get another scalp and another scalp, whether it's whether it's Boehner or Paul Ryan or then McCarthy, Scalise would just be next and we all know it. We just can't allow that to happen. That's why those of us are saying, like, look, you pushed us into this corner, so now we're now we're saying we won't vote for anyone but McCarthy. That's why we're saying it, because we cannot let the terrorists win. That that's basically what's happening. We cannot let the terrorists win. This is from a former SEAL who used to kill terrorists. I guess he wants to kill some of his fellow Republicans. Chris, was there a a positive aspect here of a kind of winnowing of uh, separation of the the chaff from the wheat that now we know who the real, really hidden rhinos are? You know, yes and no. I mean, a lot of these people, I I, I think it just exposed... Uh, or shed more light on some of the uh, some of the things that we basically already knew. There weren't really many that many surprises. Uh, like, the, I mean, the, the clip you just played of uh, uh, of um, Crenshaw, like they call him of, of Crenshaw, is like not surprising at all, right? I mean, but but he never it, used it, language it, like that before. He never called yeah, you know called know. his fellow Republicans terrorists. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, this is somebody who is permanently at odds with the rest of of the Republican conference in the House and with the base. Um, and and, 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 and we're, not, we're not psychiatrists here, Chris, but, has, but, but, but why is that? Do you have any uh, supposition as to what is his goal? Is he trying to become the next McCain, or does he think he's just too special and that these people shouldn't represent their districts? What, what's your hypothesis to why somebody like him or even, you know, Judge Janine and others say, just suck it up and vote? Um, well, it just, well, in his particular case, I mean, it's, we've seen this over and over again. It's just bad character. Like, this is somebody who does not who does not have the character of somebody who should be in high government office in this country, just full stop. Like he needs to go and find some other line of work. 
<laughs> I think that's the best answer. All right, let's talk about your book, America and the Art of the Possible. Out today. Where can everybody get it, Chris? I can get it on Amazon.com, of course. It's a little website you may or may not have heard He's of. He's supporting the globalists. How dare he? Uh, I, I, I bet uh, they can uh, get uh, it at uh, I'm Greatness, right? They can, you can get it on M Greatness, or our publisher actually does a very good job on their website, uh, Encounter Books. Uh, oh, and good. you can order from them. They do fulfillment. It's uh, It'll be there just as quick as if you order from Amazon. I have already I've been promoting the book. You'll appreciate this so you'll, because I get these tweets and, and things from people. who are like, I don't want to buy it from Amazon. Where else can I buy it? Encounterbooks.com. It's available on their website. Um, you can buy it from them, and fulfillment is, you know, within a matter of days. So it's uh, it's available wherever good books are found. As we All right, say. excellent. Uh, go to Encounter Books, go to amgreatness.com. So uh, first things first, what, what is the biggest – I understand the book is a diagnosis of the challenge we face as a nation. Then your recommendations as somebody who's steeped in America first, who is a very successful businessman – What's what's the biggest challenge? You know, five six years ago, it was the uh, for me at least, and I think for you to a certain extent, it was doing the ideological heavy lifting for America First and for MAGA. We we had the president; he'd won the election, and there was the kind of so what movement, like you know, nineteen eighty eighty one for Reagan, that we have to build the ecosystem of of doing the big thinking about what this means going forward. I think the situation is pro- probably worse today, given the state of the nation and geopolitical uh, affairs. But you tell me, based upon your book, what is the first thing? What is priority number one for conservatives and for patriots? I think it's a big question. I mean, because there's a lot that needs to be done. And, and this is why in the book, what I spend the first half of the book um, and what I would call this sort of descriptive element of the book in the second half of the book is, is prescriptive. Because what we see in the country isn't just um, sort of a political uh, problem, though we obviously spend a lot of time thinking and talking and working on, on that problem. But there's there are a host of problems that that run from sort of the physical, uh, you know, biological problems in the sense of people are unhealthy in this country. Like American lifespans have been declining for ten years. Um, you see that people have a harder time uh, making money. Living standards are actually uh, declining and have been declining. A lot of these things play out in politics, and they take on an, ideo- an ideological uh, valence to them because people uh, realize that, you know, they've sort of been promised one thing uh, within the context of the American dream, and they're getting something that actually is quite different. I mean, a fundamental problem, um, it, it, and maybe this is the right way to answer your your question, is is a fundamental problem is that implicit and often explicit in the in the American promise is that you will do better than your parents and your kids will do better than you. And that requires that the country is growing, um, that it is dynamic or in the, or the term I use is vital. It is a it, it, there's it is a civilization that has vitality. Um, it is dynamic. Uh, good things are happening. There's innovation, there's growth, there's expansion. And that means like in very concrete ways, you know, people. People are living longer and they're healthier when they're older, right? Those things have been going in the wrong direction in this country. People are living less long and they're sicker when they're older. And so people, you know, I say this in the book, people say, well, isn't it great? Like we have these great pharmaceutical companies that, you know, they develop these great pills you can take if you have heart disease or or you, or, or you, or you have diabetes or whatever. Yeah, that's great. But what we're missing is, is that we have more better medicines for heart disease. But we have more heart disease. Like, why? Maybe go back a step. Why do we have those problems? And so, the way I think about this is that, uh, and this is one of the things I sort of describe is like, how do we get back to, and this is job one, how do we get back to an America in which you have an expectation that if you or your kids so basically works hard and plays by the rules, you're going to do better than your parents and your kids are going to do better than you. That's a very big, that's a very big question. Um, and that's why I tried to spend the back half of, of the book going through very concrete ways in which we could start to rebuild a country where that's possible. All right. It's out today. I want to hear 
at least the beginnings, because, you know, uh, spoilers here, you need to go and buy the book, but I want to hear from our special one-on-one guest just some of the concrete recommendations on how we get America back to where it should be. It is America and the Art of the Possible. Encounter books also, just go to the website. You will not regret it. Am Greatness, American Greatness, amgreatness.com. The author is Chris Boskirk. This is America First one-on-one. If you enjoy the show, Make sure you never, ever miss a millisecond of America First or my Newsmax show or anything else that we do. And how do you do that? You follow us on social media. We are everywhere except the fascistic YouTube. You can follow us on Truth Social, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Parler, on Getter, on Telegram, on Clout Hub. If you want to watch us, because we are a TV show as well, by the way, it's SalemNewsChannel.com. And most recently, we're going to have an article up there very soon, my plan to drain the swamp. It's my new Substack. It's my name, SebastianGorka.Substack.com. That's my name in one word, SebastianGorka.Substack.com. Follow us on all platforms and you'll never miss a thing. MyPillow is having their biggest sheet sale of the year. You all have helped build MyPillow into the amazing company that it is today. Now, Mike Lindell, my buddy, the inventor and CEO, wants to give back to my listeners. The Percal bedsheet set is available in a variety of colors and sizes, and they're on sale. For example, the queen size is regularly $89.98, but now for you, just $39.98 with your listener promo. Order now, because when they're gone, they're gone. The Percal sheets are breathable and have a cool, crisp feel. They come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. It's a limited supply, so be sure to order now. Call 1-800-829-8468, promo code Gorka, or just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio list square, and plug in G-O-R-K-A. That's 1-800-829-8468, or MyPillow.com, code Gorka. All right, Chris, how are we going to fix things? You're absolutely right. The expectation, you know, it's, it's like, it reminds me of, uh, you know, when, when every year when my son was young on his birthday, we'd sit down in the kitchen and uh, I'd have my wife or my daughter film us. And on my son's birthday, as he was a teenager, we'd arm wrestle. Uh, on his 18th birthday, I mean, he's a D1 athlete and whatever, I mean, six foot six and what have you. And on his 18th birthday, it, it was like, it was, we were in the middle. It was like a stalemate for about three minutes. And I said, dude, okay, you got me. And I remember so well that day when my father looked up at me. My father was six foot tall and he looked up at me and he said, you're taller, you're stronger, you're smarter. That's the way it should be. And I think that's the American ethos that, you know, you translate that to the prosperity of the next generation should always be greater than those of the parents. And you're right, we've, we've lost that. Now, how do you re-inculcate that? It's not just the indices of the economy. It's not just the, the S&P. That's really a cultural challenge. So what are your recommendations for how we revivify, re, you know, invigorate that ethos into the culture that was really built upon it, Chris? Yeah, this is one of the things I, I stipulate this in the book is that, like, this is, a, this is a, just a massive problem. And so nothing that I suggest in the book do I say will, will solve everything. What I really try and do is, is I go through very concrete uh, proposals that can maybe help change the trajectory. In other words, they're a start. You know, we're planting seeds here. They're real. They're tangible. Do I think that uh, in and of themselves, any one of those things will solve everything? No. Like, we didn't get here uh, overnight. We're not going to fix it overnight. However, that doesn't mean we lack agency. It doesn't mean we can't do things that are that are definable and good and positive and can help change the trajectory. So, you know, sort of like turning around a uh, you know an aircraft carrier. It takes a little bit of time. And, I, and some of the things that I've proposed in the book um, really go and directly address the problems um, you know that I address because what I tried to do is be you know a lot of times you write there's sort of political books and everything's up at a hundred thousand feet and it's it's, they're not concrete enough but when I when I you know the problems that I've set out um, to try and help solve are where you you know we've got for instance like we've got the health issues you know life expectancies are down uh, chronic disease is up you've got the sort of material economic 
aspect of it where you see that uh, that real wages have been stagnating uh, or for some groups of Americans have been declining for a long time. Or you, you have uh, you have another part where you have all the political dysfunction. Like, how do you solve those problems or at least begin to or, or at least begin to solve those problems. And one of the things that that I that I spent a good amount um, of time talking about is uh, is how we might uh, empower groups of people, smaller groups of people in order to find the solutions like that, I think, is is, is half of the half of the problem is that you have such stifling conformity in this country. Some of it is socially uh, pressured, but some of it is also legally pressured. You know, HR law, and you've got uh, you've got sort of the education system that is very homogenizing. And so, I talk about how do we um, reinvent the American education system? You know, the the system that we have right now is basically invented at the behest of the of the, of the Ford and Rockefeller foundations at the beginning of the 20th century, and it was it was it was really designed to try and adopt industrial principles, in other words, how you run a factory and apply that to a school. And the thought was is that, like, we run these factories uh, in a certain way. We're in an industrial age. We want to be an industrial country. And so we're going to treat people like widgets, and we're going to run them through the system. And, you know, I tend to think that was a bad idea even at the time. Maybe there was an argument for it 100 years ago or 110 or 120 years ago when this was being adopted. That argument, if it was ever any good, and I'm skeptical of that, it is gone. Yeah. And so we need to rethink our entire education system. School choice is a good start. But there are other, but there are ways that even that could be made more robust. And one of the things, just to just to um, uh, just to make it concrete, is for instance, we should have um, we should make college three years. Yes, um, you should be also there should be an option where it could be two years if you just want to go and get a degree. But we should also adopt a system where you can get a GED for college. So maybe you don't have to go at all if you're able to demonstrate knowledge and that that eliminates some of the sort of roadblocks that are in front of people in front of people eliminates or reduces credentialism and allows people to get on with their lives in a way um that is much more efficient where they can do it when they're younger i love that i love that and vocational schools we need to be pumping out of millions of people who actually know how to fix stuff know how to make stuff we're talking to chris buskirk author of america and art of the possible we are coming to you from the relieffactor.com studios if you're in daily pain if you've tried everything else and failed to find relief do what i did more than four years ago order the three weeks quick starter pack at relieffactor.com it'll be at your door in three days or less take it morning and evening like i do and i promise you dr g's guarantee by the end of those three weeks you will know whether it works for you like it works for me and half a million of your fellow americans you've waited long enough don't wait any longer you deserve to know call 800-500-8384 relieffactor.com that's 800-500-8384 relieffactor.com this is a red alert for hard-working americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda wealth protection research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security we're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like jim rickards and porter stansberry they're not afraid to tell it like it is exposing how the system is rigged against you text ideas to 76626 to find out more with the 2024 election storming our way your ira and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs that's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from free thinkers don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late get this critical report text ideas to 76626 the fight for your financial freedom is on text ideas to 76626 now for your free report that's ideas to 76626 standard text and data rates may apply Chris, that uh, focus on doing things at, at a smaller group level and a more local level, that sounds a lot like a, um, a certain book by a former French aristocrat who, who visited France. It sounds like what de Tocqueville <laughs> identified as really one yeah. of the key building blocks of America, the volunteerism and the fact that really, you know, we were built on subsidiarity. The founding fathers wanted Washington to be an irrelevance. Gridlock was designed into the system and everything. I mean, and this is what the left 
learned so well since Tip O'Neill and the, you know, everything is local, act, politics is all local, is that it's, it's that the local community is where America is at. I, I think it sounds to me like you're talking about that as well, that kind of Tocquevillian thing. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, no, 100 percent. I mean, I do think I, I do think to, to, to the extent we're able to empower people. Um, whether it be individual people, small groups of people, you know, sometimes they're called intentional communities, and there's there's a sort of whole literature based around that. It could be, you know, religious communities. Uh, it could just be communities based on interest, geography, political um, sort of political outlook. All of these sorts of um, all of these sorts of human groupings, I think, should be given more power than they are presently given one and this is actually there's actually a section on this i mean one of the things that i think would be um would, would be tremendously beneficial to the country and to the people involved in these projects is if we were if is if we carved out a uh, a system in which people could build new cities in this country like actual de novo cities where they had a a a a, 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 a unique shall we say, the legal mandate, and it would allow them to experiment with different types of political arrangements within the context of their city. Uh, people have thought about this a lot. There's a, there's a group called uh, or there's a group called the Charter Cities Institute that has worked on things called charter cities. There's another group called Praxis, which is working on something similar. But basically the idea is, is that if people are able to, um, meaning legally able to do something different um, and experiment within the context of American constitutionalism, they, that, uh, that benefits uh, some, see, some foreseeable and some unforeseen, I think, will accrue to that. Number one is building uh, a brand new city is a huge undertaking. Like the idea that we as a country would start building new cities, I think, in and of itself is exciting. It would, it would come with a lot of challenges and opportunities. It would also force people to solve problems that were unforeseen. And that's where innovation occurs. You know, it's all, innovation always occurs at the margin where there's some challenge that you just absolutely positively need to solve for because it's, uh, it's an existential crisis. And when you're building a de novo city, um, you know, we saw like, you know, we saw this with uh, uh, Constantine. He built Constantinople. You saw this even in Brazil when they built Brasilia. Um, You know, there's when people or civilizations undertake to build brand new cities, there's a that's not only a sign, but uh, an impetus towards dynamism. And the, the example that I use as kind of an analog for the way this could work is Puerto Rico. Right? Puerto Rico exists within the United States. Um, it is not a state, uh, which, is sometimes, which is sometimes said to be a de- detrimental to the citizens of Puerto Rico. I think that's not true. Um, actually, it gives them uh, a unique opportunity to innovate. Um, they have all you know, their citizens with all the rights of being citizens of the United States. They have a much lower federal tax rate. They have a much lower federal regulatory burden. And it, it, uh, it creates kind of the structure around which, you know, for instance, a place like Hong Kong was able to flourish uh, as kind of a window into mainland China and a way that it was able to, to trade and interact with the wider world. You, there's, a, there's an analog there that if we take kind of a Puerto Rican type system, we start building new cities in the United States, that those cities will, uh, if they're given more latitude, more sort of legal latitude within the broader American constitutional framework, that they will be able to unleash uh, dynamism, you know, that is latent within the American people and that that will help make the, the overall uh, the, the overall country more vital. All right. So we're creating new Constantinople's, new Brasilias uh, in America. We're going to talk about Brazil in a second before we, before we run out of time. But here's the challenge. This is enticing. This is seductive. But let me throw it back at you. I was on a, a Twitter Spaces after the, the final McCarthy vote, and somebody asked me a question about the conservative leadership in America has to do what, you know, what should they do about X, Y, and Z? And I laughed and I said, what, what, what do you mean conservative leadership? Who, who, who are the conservative leaders? I mean, President Trump is still an outsider, not a politician, who's hated by, you know, a large swath of those who have the letter R after their name on Capitol Hill. So even when it comes to such a concrete concept is building these new communities who's going to be the standard bearer for this i don't see a cadre of conservative leaders uh, they it, it, how are we going to do this chris yeah there's a major there's a major leadership gap 
um, across the board. And trust me, it's not just on the idea of building new cities, which, you know, I sort of intentionally tried to pick some ideas which were which were large and like just sort of maybe on the borderline of uh, where people would say that's like completely undoable because we've got to be thinking big like that. We've got to be think- we've got to be trying to undertake really big projects. And I think that um, the, the leadership on, the, on issues like this is not original, is not going to originate in the political sphere. It just can't. It's going to have to it's going to have to. Um, it's going to have to originate possibly in like the intellectual world as like a, at a basic at a basic seed level. But when you know to go to kind of realize this and make it real, it's probably going to come out of the entrepreneurial world where people just say, you know, this is where the where people say like we actually want to build this and we have experience at building things and making them work. And the, you know, part of this is a reaction to the fact that the political class doesn't have the experience of building anything and it sure as hell doesn't have the ability or the history of making things work. So, you know, I, I suspect that, that we're not going to find that leadership on these issues is political leadership, at least not at first. The political class will come to this very, very late. Um, but it's going to be the innovators and the entrepreneurs who take this up, if anybody takes it up at all. Well, he's one of them. He is an entrepreneur, and he is the founder, the editor-in-chief of the website American Greatness, amgreatness.com. You've got to go there right now, bookmark it. And from Encounter Books or from Am Greatness, you've got to order his book out today, America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay by Chris Buskirk. I'm Sebastian Gorka. This is America First, coming to you from just outside the insalubrious, fetid, rank, malodorous swamp that is Washington. DC. If you suffer from daily pain, if you've tried everything else and failed to find relief, do what, do what I did more than four years ago. Find out for yourself if this is the answer you've been looking for. It's not just me. It's not, not just Dr. G. It's people like Yvonne from California. This is Yvonne's story. Both my husband and I are in our 70s and are so grateful to have found Relief Factor. We tried so many other solutions, but none of them have given us the freedom of being pain-free like Relief Factor. Just those two words, pain-free, should be reason enough for you to order the three-week quick starter pack from Relief Factor.com. It'll be at your door in three days or less. Take it morning and evening like I do. And I promise you, Dr. G's guarantee by the end of those three weeks, you will know whether it works for you like it works for me, Yvonne, and 500,000 of your fellow Americans. You've waited long enough. You deserve to know. Don't wait any longer. Call now, 800-500-8384, ReliefFactor.com. That's 800-500-8384, ReliefFactor.com, ReliefFactor.com. Com. I should have asked you earlier, since we're almost at the end of our hour, Chris, but uh, you reminded me so graciously, so subtly, uh, when you talked about new cities <laughs> like uh, Brasilia, the events uh, of the uh, weekend. I was on another Twitter Spaces. It is not good for my sleep. <coughs> Jeff, uh, my producer, said you're absolutely right. Um, I listened to this Spaces with left-wingers, right-wingers, MAGA, uh, hardcore Democrats, and it was like my head was spinning at the end of it. I had conservatives telling me that it was Antifa types that faked it all. I had left-wingers telling me that this is Trump and Bannon-orchestrated insurrection in Brazil. Uh, what, what's, what's your reaction to these historic uh, things we are witnessing from Brazil? I mean, look, this is... I do, I'm not in Brazil. I, for people who I trust on this, say it is it, that it is real uh, Bolsonaro supporters out there. There's a lot of them. So if this was fake, that's like an amazing fake job. Um, but it, it's also consonant with what we saw right after the election down in, down in Brazil. I mean, Brazil, I guess I look at this from an American context. I've spent some time in Brazil. I actually like the country quite a lot. It is a country that we do not want to become. Um, and I say this as somebody who likes Brazil. It is geographically very divided. Um, you know, in the in the north, you basically have uh, the le- the left wing is very much uh, in evidence in the north, and you have sort of the Bolsonaro sort of populist right that is in the sort of central and south part of Brazil. Um, so you have a geographic divide that, uh, that's a political that is also a political divide, and you have you have this sort of endemic corruption. I mean, let's let's remember why Lula, the current president of Brazil, uh, 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 why his last term as president gave rise to Bolsonaro, which is because of a massive, massive, massive multi-billion-dollar uh, political and financial corruption scandal, which wound up sending him 
to prison with um, with three with three convictions like, you know, with three convictions and then you have him in prison and you have a corrupt supreme court which sort of throws out the conviction and gets him out of jail and there is just a there is a pervasive sense in brazil that the system is broken it doesn't work and there's a reason for that is because it's pretty broken and it doesn't work very well and so when that happens this is exactly the sort of thing that you see and this is something that you see to greater or lesser extent uh throughout the world you have seen we've seen it in europe we saw it in the united states you see it you know kind of writ large in brazil is when the, these systems um become they get gained by the ruling class yeah. Everybody's in on the joke, and they know that these that that, that there's a se- there is a small segment of the country that uh, is gaming the entire system for their own private personal benefit, and that everybody else is shut out, and what you, and that leads to social breakdown, social and political instability. And so, like to, you know, when I look at the, this, what I see is a cautionary tale, um, and this is why we need to be very much on guard in this country to see that we have a system that is transparent. It's- that is not corrupt, that has some integrity, and, uh, and where we have a broadly shared, uh, where we have a broadly shared American experience where everybody thinks they're getting a more or less fair deal. You've been listening to America First one-on-one with me, your host, Sebastian Gorka. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, keep your head in a swivel. Watch your six. Hold the line. Never give up, never give in, and stay frosty. brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The world will little note or long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. And we will make America great again. is America First with Sebastian Gorka. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's Biden with uh, that funny chap up north, Trudeau, who always wears stupid socks. And by the way, Trudeau, never wear brown shoes with a suit unless it's the weekend and the suit is a tweed suit. Seriously, do these people not understand anything about sartorial elegance? I'm Sebastian Gorka, and we have an amazing three hours for you. Do not go anywhere. You're listening to America First on the Salem News Channel. What was all that shouting about? And why did Biden refuse to respond? Well, well, well. Let me tell you a story. Here's one write-up, in case you've been under the rock uh, for the last 12 hours, from Paul Best at Fox News. Classified documents from Biden's time as vice president discovered at Penn Biden Center. That's Pennsylvania University. White House says... Oh, the White House says, how intriguing. A batch of records from President Biden's time as vice president, including a, quote, small number. I wonder who gets to define what small is. A small number of documents with classified markings were discovered at the Penn Biden Center by the president's personal attorneys, On November the 2nd, according to special counsel to the White House, Richard Zauber. Huh. November 2nd. 
That's interesting. Just file that away. Let me continue. The attorneys found the documents in a locked closet. Oh, well, that's... Phew. My gosh, at least it was in a closet. Was it in with the cleaning materials and the uh, extra cookies? While preparing to vacate office space at the center, which the president used from mid-2017 until he began his 2020 campaign. The National Archives were notified of the finding and took possession of the documents on November 3rd. That's weird. So within 24 hours, the National Archives took possession of the classified documents, which, by the way, include the highest level, not only top secret, but special compartmented information, SCI documentation the very next day. They didn't, they didn't raid the offices with FBI agents in body armor with loaded guns. They didn't raid Biden's home, the White House. They didn't raid his home in Delaware. Wow, that's weird. Quote, the documents were not the subject of any previous request or inquiry by the archives. Oh, that's okay then. Oh, who cares whether they're classified? Nobody was looking for them, Zauber said in a statement. Since that discovery, the president's personal attorneys have cooperated with the archives and the Department of Justice. You mean the Department of Justice that's run by that meat puppet, Merrick Garland, who was nominated by the same guy who had those classified documents illegally in his old office. You mean, you mean that Department of Justice, right? Just want to make sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And in a process to ensure that any Obama-Biden administration records are appropriately in the possession of the archives. Well, you know, I mean, he was vice president so recently. Let me, let me think. Um, Eric, when, 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 was, when was Biden vice president? What was, that? was that last week? No, when was that? I believe that is now six years ago, January of 2017. Oh, six years ago. Well, isn't that interesting? F- file that away as well. well. We'll come back to that in a moment. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, John Lausch, to review the matter, according to CBS which first reported on the document's discovery yesterday. Biden slammed former vice president last year after FBI agents seized approximately 300 classified documents from his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. Oh, in fact, I think we have that cut. Here's a little reminder. Cut one. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself? looking at that image how that could possibly happen how one anyone could be that irresponsible and i thought what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods by that i mean names of people who helped or etc and it's just uh, totally irresponsible hmm we should probably save that clip that might be useful in the future the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, oh, these, doesn't that sound impressive, is affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania. Hang on, the Penn Biden Center is affiliated what, with the University of Pennsylvania? That's so surprising. But opened its doors in Washington, D.C. in February 2018. The think tank's stated mission is to, quote, engage Penn's students and partners with its faculty and global centers to convene world leaders, develop and advance smart policy, and strengthen the national debate for continued American global leadership in the 21st century. Uh, Is that why Penn State has accepted in recent years more than $50 million from the Chinese government? Is that the kind of global engagement we're talking about? Yeah, just file that away. The Department of Justice and National Archives did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Monday. All right, so you've got three things filed away. Let me add a couple more.
Allegedly, according to recent reports, amongst the documents that were classified at the highest level, top secret, SCI, include policy documents on the Ukraine. Yeah, on the Ukraine. Isn't that interesting? And also, President Trump, unlike any vice president ever, I don't care who they are, Republican or Democrat, uh, President Trump can declassify any document like that, which he did. The documents at Mar-a-Lago are not classified, if he deems them not to be. A vice president cannot declassify anything, ever. He can request they be declassified, but he has no power to do so. So that's a crime. And let's summarize it all with a great clip from the one and only Byron Donalds. Cut five. Play cut. Oh, well, my reaction is pretty simple. I'm wondering why the vice president of the United States had classified documents outside of the hands of the intelligence community. Listen, it's been pretty clear that presidents do have some classified documents. But the difference between a president and everybody else is the president has the ability to declassify information. The vice president has no ability to declassify information. So number one, what was he doing with classified information in his possession? Number two, why did it take six years? And I want to stress this for the American people. Joe Biden left the vice presidency in 2017. So it's taken six years for these documents to surface. That is incredibly concerning. And point number three, and this is the one that's most important. Everybody can go back to the Hillary Clinton email saga. We know other presidents have had classified information. But why was there a raid on Mar-a-Lago? But now this story just kind of seeps out and everybody's saying, oh, we just want to get down to the bottom of it. And everybody's giving the benefit of the doubt. And it seeps out now despite these documents being discovered six days before the midterms. Interesting, though. I'm Sebastian Walker. This is America First. If you enjoy the show, make sure you never miss a millisecond. Subscribe right now. It's free. Go to Spotify, plug in my name, Sebastian Walker, America First. Leave us a five-star review and share the links. We've only just begun. Stay on this channel. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.